Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. Today we are going to talk about kid beauty pageants, child beauty pageants, and baby parades because... We've already done a podcast way back when on Miss America, mm-hmm. which is the adult, <laughs> that makes it sound sexual somehow, but that's the, you know, obviously the, uh, the adult beauty pageant. But due to the popularity of certain television shows that have documented kids in, in beauty pageants and especially the pageant parents and all of the glitz and glamour that goes into it and the controversy surrounding Kid beauty pageants. We wanted to take a look at these strange events. Yes, people parading their babies around. Yes. Um, you know, we were reading a lot of sources uh, from from you know articles from overseas mm-hmm. in England, Australia. People were really upset about what they called American style child beauty pageants. Right. And I'll just have you know. They did not originate in America. We just sort of took them and ran with them. Right. There's this article we found in the Guardian newspaper over in uh, the UK talking about this recent rise in popularity of, like you said, Caroline, these American style child pageants. But hey, Guardian, uh, sorry to burst your British bubble, <laughs> but we got them from you in the first place, this is coming from Hillary Levy Friedman, who is a sociologist. Uh, she went to Harvard, and she is an expert on beauty pageants in general, especially child beauty pageants. And she traced it back to John Ruskin, a British art critic, historian, and rumored pedophile, mm. uh, who started the May Queen Festivals in 1881. Yes, to honor a girlish innocence. Hmm. That just sounds terrible. Um, yeah, he would, the, the queen of the May Queen festivals had to be the likablest and lovablest of all the maidens. Uh, that's a quote. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then it, you know, it spread to North America and we took it and ran with it, like I said, and it became kind of turned into this. Uh, what they call systematic baby competition. Right. Because they didn't, uh, they didn't start with older, you know, like adolescent and nope. teen girls. Nope. They, when, when it came over to the United States, they started out with parading babies. Around. Right. Went right for the baby jugular. <laughs> the baby jugular. Right. Uh, <laughs> the most, the most famous baby parade is at Asbury, was at Asbury Park, mm-hmm. excuse me. Um, it was the first baby parade ever held on the East Coast, and it drew tens of thousands of spectators in its heyday in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1904, Thomas Edison made one of his first movies about the event. Yeah, and you can see, it's really easy to find. I, I want to say it was in the National Archives. I ran across Edison's footage mm-hmm. from that baby parade. So if you want to uh, take a look at what those those baby parades were like, it, it's really what you would think it is. It's is a parade of old-timey prams and <laughs> prams and carriages. And a New York Times article from 1911 described the 21st annual Asbury Park Baby Parade um, saying that there were 50,000 people in attendance and there were 583 children all being paraded in around Yeah, the- I cannot even imagine. As someone who has recently been on a plane with children, lots of them, all of them under... 
I'd say four. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine being around this many children. <laughs> Not if they're being, you know, if they're even if they're being like paraded around because they're so I guess well, likableist and lovableist. I wouldn't even go. <laughs> let's be honest. I can't imagine. You no. Know. Ah, uh, babies Aww. are babies are cute, but I gotta say the uh, the baby parades got a little weird. Yeah, they got kind of weird. Um, first of all, Coney Island, not surprisingly, ended up with the most popular baby parade. It had twelve hundred participants in its first year, six hundred of whom were competing for the title. Of most beautiful baby. And you Sounds know when wonderful. those babies won, when those babies got that blue ribbon, it just, they continued their... to sit there <laughs> yeah. and drink their bottle. Um, <laughs> yeah, it actually, it really thrived in the 1920s. And one year, a three year old girl in a harem costume won. And, uh, a six year old girl won in a showgirl get up. Are you kidding me? Like, isn't that creepy? That's well, weird, right? That, that reminds me though, there was a recent controversy, mm-hmm. um, about, uh, this, this, um, pageant mom who dressed up her, I don't know, she was probably like four or five year old daughter and, as Julia Roberts from the movie Pretty Women. Pretty Women. And- <laughs> I mean, they were all pretty. But. Well, I'm thinking of like the movie mashup between Pretty Woman and Little Women. <laughs> oh my god! I hope can we can somebody make that? I hope so. But you're right. Yes, the costume game from Pretty Woman, uh, and and yes, it wait, was, which one? It, the red dress? No. The the, the, bit, the tall boots. The tall boots and the uh, the white top. Anyway. Oh. Yeah, so the tradition continues of questionable costumes for very young young girls. Right. And it wasn't it wasn't just for girls. There were mm-hmm. competitions involving boys and still are. Um another less than tasteful contest <laughs> uh was the heaviest boy under one year of age contest. Yeah. Well, because that was this was this whole thing became part of the healthy baby mm-hmm. movement, especially in the nineteen twenties. This mm-hmm. was an aspect of uh some very controversial public health initiatives that is tied in with eugenics. Yikes. And for those of you who don't know about the eugenics movement, it kind of basically advocated practices that would improve a population's genetic makeup in very controversial ways. Yes. And so because of that, these better baby contests that started in the 1850s and really peaked in 1913 placed emphasis on the physical perfection of these babies. They would weigh them, measure them, judge their personalities. Yeah, they were stripped naked and judged on several points. I think that's terrible. Poor (laughs) little, hopefully they blocked it out or just didn't remember there were babies. Hopefully they well, were too it's young. Well, it kind of sounds like, you know, the, the, um, the Westminster dog show. Yeah. When they have them up on the, the dogs up on the little stage mm-hmm. and they lift their ears up and lift their tails up and it kind of, those better babies. Yeah. Huh? Lifting those babies' tails yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back then it also, uh, must have been somewhat controversial. Uh, the last known, um, healthy baby contest was held at the Iowa State Fair in 1952, around the time the beautiful baby contests and parades also began to peter out. But I found some modern-day baby parade and healthy baby contest links. Oh, yeah? Yeah, there was one. There's one in Hawaii called the Meadow Gold Dairy's Annual Healthy Baby Contest. And it's a tradition since 1953, which is the year after this fact (laughs) about the Iowa State Fair in 1952. And the quote on the website is, Hundreds of toddlers compete for the title of Oahu's healthiest baby. They're judged on physical appearance, healthiness, and personality, with each category scored on a 50-point scale. 
scale. No, it sounds like the exact same thing. I know. Now, I, I think it's worth noting that um, the the Beautiful Baby contest started to die out in the 50s, mm-hmm. partially because people were concerned about spreading polio. Oh, yeah. In All large kids groups. in one place at yeah, one time. But kind of, but at the same time, you still hear similar arguments that people make against today's child beauty pageant. For instance, this, uh, this 1936 New York Times headline, baby awards and joy. Mm. Yeah, they were just saying that like all of competing for all these prizes, the parents would go bonkers trying yeah. to get uh their kids first place. They would take kids across state lines so that they could compete in more pageants. Right, false identification and all that stuff. Yeah, people these it, it's really more about the 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 crazy parents than the kids. Yeah, kids probably didn't even know what was going on. No. I get to dress up today. But then in 1958 we have child and teen pageants taking off with America's Junior Miss pageant, which was started by the JCs of Mobile, Alabama, which is kind of interesting that the, the kid and teen pageant thing starts in Mobile mm-hmm. because a lot of times it seems like, at least from the portrayals on television, a lot of this is taking place in the South. Right. And not to offend anyone or get too controversial, but, uh, the Guardian article quotes Frank, uh, let's, Furity, Furidi, Furetti, uh, a professor of sociology at the University of Kent. Um, you know, he talks a little bit about what these, uh, pageants mean to parents and their kids. And he says that in America, it's seen as a white trailer trash kind of thing. And there's a real contempt for that. But if you come from a middle class background and shove your child into music lessons, that's OK. Parental aspiration requires dif- uh, acquires different forms, but it's a very similar kind of impulse. I think he has a point that parents are always shoving their kids into something. Right. Just that uh, he just points out this perception that seems to be kind of prevalent about who's doing what activity. Right, because and there was another study um, conducted by Hillary Levy Friedman, who we talked about, um, who is from Harvard, who did the, the, she's done extensive sociological research on beauty pageants as well. And she interviewed 41 mothers who participated in about five pageants a year. So these these are kind of like the, the super moms that we mm-hmm. stereotype with the child beauty pageants. And her study found that mothers of lower income and lower education levels would typically enroll their daughters in these contests to teach them proper skills to move up the social ladder. Right. Because you, you know, you have contests for things like poise and they're mm-hmm. putting on makeup and they have to do this special talent that they can use to entertain people. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I can understand it possibly from that perspective. Uh, it might be, there might be better ways, but going back to, the the emergence of of teen and child pageants in the United States. I would like to point out not only some notable pageants, but mm-hmm. also some notable pageant winners, teen pageant winners. Let's hear it. For instance, America's Junior Miss Pageant of 1963, mm-hmm. Diane Sawyer. What? Yes. Had no idea. I know. I mean, she's a pretty lady. I'm <laughs> sure she was a pretty baby. <laughs> no, well, I think this was the teen competition. Oh, teen. Too. Okay, so I'm sure she was and a she lovely was young woman. Okay, <laughs> she was probably a pretty baby too. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> other America's Junior Miss Pageant winners include Deborah Norville, yeah. Kim Basinger, Kathy Lee Gifford, and Deborah Messing from Will and Grace. All right, ladies. See, they used it to transition into show business. Was what. 
Um, I think a lot of, well, okay, I'm not going to say a lot, but I think, you know, some parents hope that their kids can transition into showbiz. That mm-hmm. was kind of talked about in some of those articles. But I wonder how promising it is if, say, your your child takes the top prize at other, you know, less prestigious beauty pageants such as Miss Catfish Queen, oh. Miss Baby Poultry Princess, Ugh. Miss American Beauty Queen of Hearts, or Miss American Starlet Fashion Model, which I wish I could win now. <laughs> This American starlet fashion model. That sounds like something out of like Jim and the Holograms. It does. It absolutely does. Um, which, you know, I was Jim when you're for Halloween. That's another podcast. Um, you know, not everybody is very excited about these pageants though. Um, Friedman, uh, was talking about blah, blah, blah. Okay. Okay. Not everybody's excited. So, uh, Friedman was actually contacted by a group of concerned citizens in Australia because this past summer, um, there was going to be a young people's pageant. Yeah, the, like the American style. Right. Seeping out first over to the UK, now to Australia. Yeah, just circling the globe <laughs> like a plague. Um, and she told them to calm down. There's actually very little data on the long-term effects of pageant participation or uh, the families who participate. Um, she actually discusses the positive effects. Uh, you know, kids learn to be confident in front of an audience, and it can be fun for some of these kids to dress up and interact, interact with other children. But she also brings up some of the problems, the potential issues that could arise. Um, one of the things that she points out is what happens if a child, you know, they've been dressed up and primped and prodded for mm-hmm. these for these pageants. Spray tanned, fake teeth. Ugh. <laughs> We saw some pictures of little girls with fake teeth and fake tans, and it is horrific. Yeah, I mean, it's and especially with the teeth, they you know, there's a reason why, you know, kids have baby teeth yeah. that fall out. And then when you're an adult, you have the adult teeth. Right. And kids with adult teeth, it does look very unnatural. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hmm. um, but she, she points out uh, that a child looking in the mirror and not recognizing herself could be really confusing and traumatic for the child. And it might reinforce the idea that she's only pretty. With these fake teeth, dyed hair, fake tan, all that exactly. Kind of stuff. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I I get what the point she's trying to make about saying, like, well, it teaches them confidence in front of an audience. It mm-hmm. can be fun interaction. Okay, if you want confidence in front of an audience, there are things like theater, spelling bee, improv. Uh, how about team sports if you want to interact or piano yeah. for skills? Like, mm-hmm. there are certainly options out there that aren't number one, like uh, judging your child on her beauty yeah and and possibly uh questionable wardrobe choices yeah she um she references a 2005 article in the journal eating disorders that discusses links between beauty pageant participation and eating disorders um she said that uh, childhood pageant participants scored higher on body dissatisfaction than non-participants and participation may lead to difficulty trusting interpersonal relationships and greater impulsive behavior but it doesn't actually, she says that it's not statistically significant, uh, its effects on bulimic behaviors, body perception, depression, and self-esteem. Basically because girls, whether they are pageant participants or not, are so inundated by media images promoting this thin ideal for, for women, this unnatural thinness, that it doesn't make, <laughs> it doesn't make them any more likely to develop an eating disorder. But I think we should also point out though, that this was a really, Small Very sample small. population. Yeah. It was 22 uh, participants, 11 of whom had done the pageants. Right. Um, actually, 
Oh, this makes me so sad. But the, the girls who are, I'm sorry, the young, they were young women at this point. The survey was done between 19 and 25. Um, they were more likely to think of themselves as larger. Yeah. Whether, I mean, no matter, because they were paired, the 11 girls who had participated in pageants as kids were paired with counterparts of similar age, weight, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, who had not. And the pageant participants were more likely to think of themselves as large and also had a greater preference for um, kind of acquiring a smaller figure. Yeah, probably because they were used to standing up on stage, you know, sandwiched between like other other thin girls. Right. But, you know, she does point out that there is a difference here between the pageant and non-pageant participants, but it wasn't completely statistically significant. Mm-hmm. However, um, you know, she does point out that all of these girls were um, exposed to, you know, lots of media. Right. You know, thin images, images of thin women in magazines and TV and all that. So they were all sort of affected by it. Yeah. I, th- I think with all of the all of the articles that we read, aside from the parents who were putting their children in these pageants and some of the girls interviewed, to be fair, some of them said that they enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see that on some of the television shows. The kids seem to be into it. But at the end of the day, it does seem like it's something very much orchestrated by the parents and especially the mothers who get really into this whole pageant cycle. Mm-hmm. And there was, aside from those people, there was no one in any of these articles that was like, yeah, I mean, pageants are good for kids. It was always like yeah. maybe a qualified, well, you might have a couple benefits. And if you're talking to a psychologist, the answer was always no. Yeah. No, it's really not good. But I think maybe one of the reasons why there isn't more empirical data on uh, on how these this pageant cycle affects kids is because there are around 3,000 children's pageants per year in the U.S., attracting more than 100,000 contestants. And while that seems like a lot, I mean, while, you know, it might seem kind of crazy that perhaps kids do compete for Miss Baby Poultry Princess, mm. but 100,000 contestants, that's, that is a small slice of, uh, of the entire, you know, population in that, in that group. Not to say that because it's a relatively small group of people, then we shouldn't care. Right. But that just might, that might be one of the reasons why there isn't more yeah, and research. They, they on also it. talk about how difficult it is to study children, mm-hmm. you know, to get children to participate. Right. Uh, in, in, in research like that. And it would probably be a little more difficult with this group to separate the filter out their parents' influence mm-hmm. from what they actually want to do. Right. Especially, you know, it's such a young age. How do you know that? It's what they want. And uh, the University of Kent uh, sociology professor who's quoted in The Guardian sort of points that out. And he says that um, no child is autonomous. If a child says, this is what I want to do, it's generally not 100 miles away from what the parent wants. What one sees here is adult fantasies fueling this thing. It's for adults. And here's the thing, too, um, because the sociologist is also the one who is saying that it appeals more to um, lower socioeconomic groups, mm-hmm. which is kind of ironic because beauty, child beauty pageants are a huge financial investment. Oh my God. Yeah. That parents are making. Some people are taking out loans. Some yeah. of these pageants end up costing parents tens of thousands of dollars. I can't think of all the shoes I, or, you know, college education or <laughs> shoes, whatever. But I mean, to, to enter America's gorgeous girl to get your, if you, if you had a little, if you wanted to enter me, <laughs> Caroline, yes. in America's Gorgeous Girl, it would cost you $325. Now, 
If I wanted to enter you, and I wish I could, in the ultimate supreme at Southern Sparkles and Smiles, and that is Smiles with a Z, <laughs> oh, it would cost me $425 just to get you Jeez. on that stage, not to mention the fake tan I'd have to give you. <laughs> I know. My, my Scottish background is, uh, it, it lo- I look scary in photos sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, you've got to consider training. Yeah. Photos, hair and makeup, clothes. I mean, some, you know, people are getting custom gowns made for their little girls yeah. that they're just going to grow out of. That just makes me sick. Um, yeah. And let's, you know, not forget they point out this is on bankrate.com where they're talking about all the money that goes into it. Um, and they mentioned that the parents who serve as managers for their children can get way too involved. And these parents typically end up having a far less stable and positive relationship with their children. I mean, can you imagine? So if you get involved, so involved in the, in the circuit that you would need some kind of managerial figure, the parent might want to bring in some kind of pageant assistant. So that's even more money. And, uh, a pageant expert points out in that article that ballet lessons are worth it for poise, but tanning sessions are not. Yeah, the judges sometimes think they look silly. Yeah. And they do on, on grown-up people, too. And uh, they should also save their money uh, from buying colored contacts because those apparently freak out judges and myself. And me. Absolutely. <laughs> Paris Hilton, that goes out to you. No, but, like, you know, children and, children and colored contacts. But I think that's exactly the point, though, the fact that parents would consider temporarily changing their young child's eye mm-hmm. color yeah. and putting in, you know, fake adult teeth and spray tanning them down in order to win what? A tiara, a sash, a gift certificate to a, a local superstore? <laughs> it it just doesn't seem worth it. It doesn't seem worth it either. I mean, think, and I know everyone has different priorities. Everybody's different. Everybody has a thing is my motto. Everybody <laughs> has a thing. Um, but, you know, just think about all the money that these people are spending and they could be spending it on something else. Maybe you know? investing it if they're, if they're concerned about, you know, te- getting their, moving their daughters up some kind of social mm-hmm. ladder. Maybe they should invest it in, I don't know, education. Yeah. If they've got that money, put it in a college fund. I don't know. I'm right. not, I'm not their parent, but it definitely seems like there are far better investments than, uh, sparkle and glitz. Although I, you know, the title of the ultimate supreme at Southern Sparkles and Smiles would be, <laughs> would be something. And I just would like to point out that I still have a mental image circulating in my brain. From the poultry thing of a baby dressed in a chicken suit. The, <laughs> just like to point that this out. This baby poultry princess? Indeed. Yeah, I'm picturing. Well, either that or, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think we've, uh, <laughs> I think we've gone about as far we've exhausted this. as we can with child, but there's so much there. And especially, I mean, just the fact that, uh, that the baby parades are connected in some way to eugenics, that just gets the whole thing off on an awkward foot. Yeah. And, I don't know. But you know what? I want to hear from um, if any listeners have actually participated in pageants when they were kids. Because, you know, I grew up with a I knew a couple of girls growing up who actually did like young lady modeling. Mm -hmm. And and it was the same thing. Their parents were like, we're going to give you confidence because you're pretty and you have confidence and whatever. And that's the only way you should be able to find confidence as a woman is to have someone else tell you that you're pretty enough to be liked. Right. Oh. Makes me feel sad. So write us, send us your emails. Anyone who has any thoughts on uh, on pageants, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is the address. In the meantime, we got a couple emails here on our Women in Science episode. And this is from a listener who wishes to remain anonymous. Um, she wrote in after listening to our science podcast. 
Um, she said another woman who had an amazing scientific breakthrough, although not known for being a scientist, is Hedy Lamar, the actress. She is best known for inventing frequency hopping spread spectrum technology. Originally invented during World War II from asking radio signals for torpedoes, although I don't think it was used until the 1960s, it is now a major building block to cell phone technology. She invented other stuff as well and was really interested in science. I find her fascinating. You can have brains and beauty. Indeed. Also, I actually have a degree in electrical engineering. When I graduated in the 90s, my graduation class was only 10% women. I did an internship within this field, but when offered a job after graduation, didn't accept it for several reasons. One of the reasons was that the workplace environment was obviously dominated by men and really wasn't comfortable for me. It wasn't that there was any type of discrimination. It just was not a group that I felt I would enjoy working with because I had nothing in common with them and didn't feel I fit in on a personal level, which is a big part of the workplace experience. I ended up taking a job with an IT consulting, so still STEM. Mm -hmm. and love it. Most entry-level positions at the time were fairly equal between men and women, and I found it to be a better, more balanced working environment. Well, I've got one here from Jessica, and while she started out as a chemistry major in college, she ended up switching to Spanish education, and uh, she, she makes an interesting point about gender in the education field. And uh, she said, the education field is positively overrun by women, and what few men are there are relegated to specific fields, usually agricultural science or physical education. I did know a couple of guys in either social science or English education, but funnily enough, I never met a guy from a math education or science education field, although there was one token male in elementary education. Gender was a topic we touched on in multiple education classes because so many teachers are female, it's important to make our male students feel included. So that's kind of, that's, that's one observation to maybe as we're talking a lot about the dearth of women in science, maybe there's a dearth of men in education that we should touch on on a later podcast. Indeed. And again, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as always, you can check us out over on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And during the week, you can check out the blog. It's stuff mom never told you at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?